University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. Under orders from the Secretary of Defense, women can now try out for all combat jobs in all services. We turn now to what some military officials call an enduring and pressing emergency, the rise in veteran suicides. But more than a dozen current and former cadets have told CBS News they reported their sexual assaults to the Air Force Academy only to then experience retaliation. Don't ask, don't tell is history, but there's still plenty to talk about. Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. We're approaching the end of our second season, and before wrapping up, we wanted to take a new look at some of the ideas that kicked this whole podcast series off, the theoretical underpinnings of civil military relations. That is, what's the best way for the military to function in a democratic society? And how can civilian policymakers and voters retain meaningful control over a very large, very professionalized military? And Nick, there's perhaps no better guest to help us think about these topics than Dr. Risa Brooks. Dr. Brooks is a professor of political science at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she teaches national security and civil military relations. She also serves as the Marquette Political Science Department's Director of Undergraduate Studies. Dr. Brooks is one of the most prominent experts in the academic field of civil-military relations, having written extensively about both American and international civ-mil issues. We recently took our mobile recording equipment up to Marquette University to chat with Dr. Brooks, primarily about her article in the Spring 2020 issue of International Security, a leading security studies journal published at MIT. Her piece is called Paradoxes of Professionalism, Rethinking Civil-Military Relations in the United States, and it's a critical look at the theory of civilian control laid out by Samuel Huntington in his 1957 book, The Soldier and the State. We've discussed Huntington's philosophy in previous episodes, like The Dangers of Deference with Dr. Ron Krebs and Robert Ralston, and our interview with retired General Stanley McChrystal. With Dr. Brooks, we discussed how Samuel Huntington's theory has influenced America's relationship with its military, some paradoxes and deficiencies in that theory, and why civil-military relations is such an important topic for all students and citizens to think about. Here's the interview. So we're here at Marquette University with Dr. Risa Brooks, a professor of political science um, who teaches civil-military relations and national security studies. Here, Dr. Brooks, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for coming up to Marquette. I know it's really cold and frigid day. Happy to have you. Yeah. Um, so, just mentioned um, you teach civil military relations. Um, you are a heavily cited, widely respected scholar in the field of civil military relations. We were wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of background on how you became interested in the in the field. Well. It wasn't by design. It was really an organic process. Um, I was in graduate school and I thought I would do international relations and wasn't exactly sure what I would do. And I started to read about civil military relations. In particular, where I went to grad school at UCSD, there was a really strong program in Latin America. And I would read about the militaries in Latin America, and then I would read about the militaries in democracies, and they just seemed like two different animals. And I think that sort of puzzle as to why that was got me on the path um, early on and uh, was not planned, though. Hmm. Yeah. So we're here today to talk about uh, your article, Paradoxes of Professionalism, Rethinking Civil-Military Relations in the United States. And in it, you, you re-examine and you reevaluate and critique Samuel Huntington's theory on civil-military relations. And Huntington was a well-known professor of political science at Harvard. In 1958, he wrote The Soldier and the State, which outlined his theory on civil-mil and has heavily influenced American civil-mil. So just so we're all on the same page, can you give us an overview of what Huntington's theory is on civil-mil relations? Sure, of course. So Huntington's argument in The Soldier and the State is really pretty basic in its sort of outline. He argues that there's an ideal model of civil-military relations, and he calls it objective control or objective civilian control of the military. 
And he thought that this model was a good model because it solved two important problems in democracies. It it ensured that the military would remain subordinate to civilian authority while also being militarily effective in armed conflict. Objective control envisions that there's this, that there are two separate spheres between the military and the political, that the military will, should and will, in his model, stay in its own domain in which it focuses on cultivating expertise in what he called the management of violence. Politicians, political leaders, will stay in their sphere and they will make policy decisions. They will make big picture political decisions to sign objectives in war and sort of set the parameters for the use of force. But that once that decision is made, it will be delegated to the military and the military will take over and run the war. The mechanism, and this is really important to some of the stuff we'll talk about today, um, whereby sort of objective control would achieve civilian control and military effectiveness is by creating a sort of apolitical professionalism in the military, in which the military would come to see that it was bad and inappropriate for it to get involved in politics. And this would then both sustain political control, but it also would allow the military to not get distracted from from cultivating this sort of specific tactical, technical expertise. And so those are sort of the the key logic of his argument. But I think it's important, if we can, if I talk a little bit about some of the implications of that and what that really means for what I call Huntington's norms of apolitical professionalism in the art article. And I think we can summarize those into four different points. The first is that the model assumes that there is and that there should be clear domains of military and political activity, that those are distinguishable, discernible, and completely separate things. And this, of course, has been critiqued by people, most notably by Elliot Cohen in his 2002 book, Supreme Command, so it's not something that's uncontroversial, but it's a key part of Huntington's argument. And, and essentially, he is challenging implicitly the idea that military activity is infused with politics all the way down. Um, so that's one key piece. A second is that Huntington supports a particular conception of how military and political leaders should interact in advisory processes. So he supports this idea that they're this sort of very transactional model in which, because there are these separate spheres, civilians sit around, make decisions, figure out what they want to accomplish with armed force. Then they call the military leaders, sort of, this is caricature a little bit, but more or less, this is the model in which they ask them, okay, this is what we want to do. Okay, here is our guidance. Go back, give us some options. Military leaders come in the room, set out, present three options to the civilian leadership. They either accept one of those or then go back for ask for refinements on those options. And the model really doesn't propose or suggest a collaborative relationship between the military and political leadership. And I'll I'll return to that later when when I sort of talk about my critique. Third, Huntington assumed that there is and should be a separation between a society based on liberal philosophical principles, such as the United States, and the military. Military professionals exhibit a military mind, a classic phrase he used, and that they are sort of in worldview, in disposition, should be uh, distinctive from society. Um, He thought that the idea of a citizen soldier, which is a key part of sort of the US, U.S. historical model of the U.S. military, he rejected that and thought there really should be a clear separation that it was beneficial to the military and to society. Last, and I think this is really important, Huntington's apolitical professionalism has a very distinctive idea of what it means to be apolitical. So it's not just rejecting partisan behavior, which everybody, I think, would agree is not a good idea for US, the U.S. military and its officers, but it, it requires sort of an abstention from engagement in politics in all sorts of ways, even intellectually and analytically. And if you read Huntington closely, you see how he makes those arguments. So it's this reflexive rejection of being politically aware or politically engaged and in this very comprehensive way. So what you're saying is that we have these 
two spheres, one of our civilian policymakers who do all the politics and one of the military that focuses on the military expertise and the profession. And the civilians dictate to the military what they want it to do, and they go off and do it. But other than that, there's not much interaction between these two spheres. And what you're saying is that many scholars over the years have critiqued Huntington's assumptions for this model and said either they're not realistic or they're not that effective, that these clear boundaries might not be that real. And even if they were that real, maybe we don't want it to be that separated. Exactly. Yes, there have been many critiques of those ideas, and especially about the idea that there's a clean separation between military and political activity and armed conflict. I think that assumption is the one that's gotten the most attention. Yeah. And so why is it that Huntington's theory is the one that has so Um, informed how our military and society interact as opposed to another theory? Well, I love that question. And um, I'll go back to sort of these issues of why has it been so influential. But I think that sort of to step back, it's important to kind of think about, you know, where Huntington comes from and how we know. We have this idea of Huntington, and I think if you talk to people who are sort of deeply immersed in those norms or sort of doing their job on the day-to-day so they're not really thinking about them, Huntington's model has a lot of logic and natural appeal to it. But to really see how much it really is an argument and how distinctive it is, we have to go back in time a little and look at where it came from. And so let's go back just briefly to the late 19th century, early 20th century, when there was a debate among, within the U.S. military among its general officers about what should be the model of professionalism. And these, this sort of debate is encapsulated in two people's views, um, General Macaulay Palmer and General um, Emery Upton. And Macaulay argued that against sort of what would become Huntingtonian thinking, he argued that it was essential that the U.S. military remain sort of a military of citizen soldiers, that the separation of, from society that professionalism might entail was, was dangerous and antithetical to the country's historical traditions. Um, Upton, however, argued that it was essential that we had that kind of separation and that it would um, do the things that Huntington later argued it would. It would ensure sort of military effectiveness, sort of maximize expertise and a focus on the sort of military arts. Huntington comes in, so there's this debate that's going on in the early 20th century. Huntington comes in then in the 1950s, and he argues really on the side of Upton, basically adopting the Uptonian model. And from there, his theory really becomes very, very influential. I mean, it all, it doesn't take much to sort of look out in the world and realize how influential it has been. Basically, pretty much every argument in American civil-military relations has to contend with Huntington in one way or another, even if it's disagreeing with it. And you see people like the former commandant of West Point and of the U.S. Army War College saying, you know, talking about Huntington's influence, even if it's not by name, but the idea of the separation of spheres is being deeply embedded in sort of the lessons that officers learn from early in their careers. So, Given this, Huntington has comes from a particular historical space and has become really influential. Why is that? Which was your original question to me. And I think, you know, I reflected on that. And I think that there's a couple reasons why. One is, and this is, this might be provocative or controversial, but if you really think about what Huntington proposes for the U.S. military, it suggests a, a large degree of organizational autonomy. And if you've read people like Barry Posen's classic work, you know that military organizations, like all organizations, like autonomy, like to be sort of their own space and be free from civilian or outside influence. So I think there's a natural coincidence of organizational interests and Huntington's model that makes it attractive for that reason. I also think that there's a simplicity to the logic and in, in some ways, you know, just think about this. If you're asking officers to reflect on how they can be constructively, politically aware and engaged, that's a lot more complicated a prospect than just saying, stay out of politics completely. 
And I think that's part of the appeal to it. I think that's a problem, but I think that's part of why. So we, we had the, historically these two schools of thought. One was calling upon ordinary citizens to take up arms, and the other said, no, the more effective way to do it is to have this professional military. And that's the approach that Huntington took, and it really grew from there. And you're saying that the military liked Huntington's idea because it gave them so much autonomy and, and gave them so much independence over their own professional expertise and matters. Yeah, I okay. think that that's natural, and I don't say that as a... As a, from a critique, I think that's just sort of makes sense organizationally why those ideas would be attractive to any organization. Turning to your article, I'm curious what inspired you to write this piece. Why is now the time to reevaluate Huntington's theory? I think that part of that is a personal intellectual reason, and then there's a sort of a bigger picture reason. I think intellectually it's something I've been, back to my dissertation, I've been thinking about the relationship between militaries and politics for a long time. And I think that my own thinking has evolved and changed somewhat about that. So I think that this is a natural progression in that way for me intellectually. But I think the bigger picture is there's a lot of things going on in civil-military relations, and it seems like there are some big challenges and could be even some bigger challenges. And you know, there are a lot of people both in the military and civilians who think very carefully about civil military norms and want to ensure that the institution is really in a good place to confront those challenges. And I think so the deeper spirit of this is to try to say we need to think more about this and here are some problems and issues that we could think, you know, sort of consider in more detail. So in your article, you talk about these three paradoxes of Huntingtonian military professionalism. The first paradox is that Huntingtonian professionalism prevents while enabling political activity by the military. What do you mean by that? Great. So recall that Huntington argued that the military, um, his conception of apolitical professionalism would allow the military to focus on its sort of tactical, technical expertise and keep it out of politics and policy decisions. And I think certainly Huntington supports civilian authority and it really sort of embraces or reinforces the idea that military professionals should stay out of decisions about the use of force and really step back in those moments. Um, so I think it guarantees authority um, of over politics, but I think it undermines this sort of creates tensions and has inherent problems in how it encourages uh, political behavior in more subtle ways. And so let me just sort of talk about some of those. And I go through a bunch of those in the article, but I'll just focus on a couple of those problems right here today. First is, I think that um, Huntington's argument encourages what we might think of as, as blind spots in officers who are beholden to those norms. And part of the reason is that he has this very reflexive association of professionalism with being apolitical. So if you are professional, you are by definition apolitical. And it's sort of axiomatic. And that sort of construct doesn't really, and in, in his book and in the way he can you know, characterize this thing, doesn't encourage the kind of introspection or the kind of reflection on what it truly means to be apolitical. And it's a lot more complex than I think Huntington suggests in his analysis. And so let me give you a couple of examples of that. I think one of the ways that you see that is the idea that political behavior is measured by one's intentions. So you will see, you know, officers or military leaders talking about why they made particular decisions. And it's really like, well, I didn't intend to interfere or shape political debate without always thinking about the consequences of the actions that they might engage in. And that's a very limited, truncated understanding of politics and one's political influence. One of the ways that you see this in particular, and I talked about in the article, is in what Peter Fever calls McMasterism. And McMasterism is a misinterpretation of H.R. McMaster's classic book, Dereliction of Duty, in which 
um, McMaster critiques the the military leadership and their relationship with President Johnson um, in many ways. But, but how that's been interpreted is that the military leadership, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should have resigned in opposition to some of the things that Johnson was doing in the war. And this conception has been translated now into this idea that if you disagree or you think um, in the terminology often used, say, in the surveys that are done on this is you think a civilian leader's decision is unwise, that you have the prerogative to resign. And over time, we've seen dramatic increases in support for this conception. So in the, in the surveys done by the Triangle Institute for Security Studies in the late 1990s by um, under Peter Fever and Dick Cohn, you see that there's, say, I think it's close to 30% of the military personnel surveyed officers agree with that idea that you should resign when a civilian leader issues an unwise order. In the 2013 YouGov surveys by Corey Shockey and Jim Mattis, you see that that number is closer to 60%. So a dramatic increase in this conception of resign in protest. Now, what's important about that is that resigning in protest, resigning in opposition to civilian orders is an inherently political act, especially if it's public. Because what it means is, especially in a time when the military is so socially esteemed, it means that you have circumscribed or limited the political latitude of the national elected leadership to do what it thinks is best in the country. You've increased the domestic political costs of seeming to violate military opinion. And so it is an inherent contradiction to be an apolitical professionalism and to support McMasterism, at least in the way, especially in, in the sort of concept of resign and protest and resigning in opposition in the way that that's constructed. So ultimately, I think part of what we're seeing here is that you need to have more, more engagement with what it means to be apolitical than Huntington allows. And because he doesn't encourage that and has other, there's some other things I talked about in the article, it's really undermining that core principle. So in Huntington's model, by saying, I'm a military officer, I'm apolitical, full stop, you never really think about how your actions might actually have consequences for political actors, how it might affect and constrain their decisions or their preferences. And the example you give with resignation of officers is, well, by resigning, I'm not intending to make a political statement. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is, it does have political consequences. Yes, and certainly there are many military officers and military leaders who do think carefully about these things. I don't want to suggest that. I'm talking in general. I'm talking about, you know, what what is sort of Huntington encourage and allow? And, and in, in order to really sustain an apolitical military, you need to have officers reflecting and thinking about what that means on a regular basis. We'll be right back. Chicago, the Windy City, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland. So talking about this paradox of preventing and enabling political activity, we've been talking about it sort of in the abstract. What are some ways that that vulnerability or that weakness in Huntington's argument is playing out currently? Great. So I think there are a couple of things that we would want to point to and, and basically framed in the way of like, why does this matter? You know, why does this matter today? And I think there's some good reasons to think it really does. And the first one is there's evidence that the apolitical norm isn't working completely, even the nonpartisanship piece of that apolitical norm. Um, and one can look at some really excellent survey research that Heidi Urban has done to sort of substantiate this. In her 2009 dissertation research, so more than 10 years ago now, but these are telling, and I wonder what we would find today. But what she found in her survey of 4,000 active duty U.S. Army officers 
is that while many did support and say things consistent with Huntington's sort of apolitical argument, that there were a large segment that sort of said things really at odds with it. I think what she found was that, I'll just quote her directly, the fact that a quarter of respondents feel it is appropriate for active duty military to publicly criticize elected officials, and a third feel there should be no limits on their public political expression is startling. I think that is startling, and that suggests that Huntington's norms and the way that they're, they're being um, informing military professionalism today is not adequate to forestall political behavior, not partisan behavior, partisan attitudes. The second sort of thing I want to point to as to why it matters today is that I think, you know, there's been lots of controversies under uh, President Donald Trump's conduct toward the U.S. military and sort of some discussion of erosion of civil military norms. And um, in particular, things like him making partisan speeches or using military resources in a way that supports his partisan political agenda, things like that. I think that that's important because I don't, I think that we could be in for a long haul change in norms of civilian behavior toward the military. And I think there's a couple of reasons. So this isn't just a sort of temporary diversion from business as usual. And there needs to be some long-term thinking about how to sustain and keep the military out of politics in the future under potentially different presidents even. And part of the reason is that the military is such a socially esteemed institution. The incentive structure to try to cultivate it or parts of its officer corps as a political constituency are intense. And now you've already seen some of those norms breaking down. And there's other ways to, you can observe that in all different areas of, of political life today. And so it's time to be thinking beyond Huntington and getting prepared for those challenges in the future. So the second paradox that you identify in your argument is that Huntington promotes civilian authority, but then also inadvertently kind of undermines civilian control of the military. And I think most students of Huntington would obviously see how he encourages and promotes civilian control. But how, in your argument, does the theory actually undermine civilian control? Great. So I think that, as you just said, Thomas, the most obvious way is that Huntington supports civilian control is it really does, the norms really support this sort of deference to civilian authority. And I think that's unquestioned, that that's present. Military folks follow orders and you don't see open defiance of civilian authority, thankfully. But I think, and, and that's the definition of civilian control that a lot of people adopt, not just in the U.S., but comparatively around the world, sort of adherence to civilian authority. But I want us to sort of step back and think a little bit more broadly about what civilian control might mean. And I'll just sort of propose a different or more more expansive way of thinking about that. So civilian control also means that the military acts and employs force in a way that supports and promotes civilian policy preferences and international objectives. So civilian control means that the way that civil-military relations are structured and what the military leadership does helps it achieve its political objectives because those civilians are elected by the American people and they are accountable to them. So they're the objectives that Americans have chosen. So Huntington's norms are contradictory to this more broad understanding of civilian control in a couple of ways. And first is because of that transactional advisory process that I spoke about a few minutes ago. And you can look at the scholarship of people like Mara Carlin, Jim Golby, Janine Davidson, who argue that that model is really antithetical to what civilians need and are looking for from military leaders. That they are looking for a much more or need a much more inductive process in which military means are considered in coordination with possible political objectives. Um, I think I would sort of frame it as civilians want a theory of how force might or might not be used to help them accomplish alternative political goals. That sort of process that produces such a theory is very different than the transactional model, this guidance um, options sort of approach that Huntington supports. 
Like, it, it can't be a one-way handoff of the baton. It needs to Absolutely. be a more nuanced conversation, um, like a, a feedback loop almost. Yes, and, and this is where, and there's another sort of piece to that, which is that military leaders are taught to be sort of very averse to discussing or engaging things that have to do with politics. This includes within the strategic assessment process. Not just the politics of their adversary or of the dynamics on the ground, but also the, the sort of domestic politics of the country. And in order to really understand and engage and help civilians achieve their goals, military leaders need to understand and learn how to engage constructively in those areas as well, I would argue. There's one other piece to this, and that is that... I think Huntington is very insidious in the way that it fosters a culture that's averse to civilian oversight, especially at the tactical and operational levels of war. It's, you know, no organization likes to be interfered with, as we just talked about a few minutes ago. But Huntington goes farther than just creating sort of resentments about civilian micromanagement. It fosters the idea that it's really inappropriate for civilians to get involved in military activity at these levels. And I think that that is really potentially problematic because sometimes those decisions in um, on the ground really do have strategic and political ramifications. And so creating a culture that's antithetical or, or challenging to creating constructive civilian oversight, not that civilians will always do that perfectly, of course, but that is sort of challenges the even premise of it is a concern that comes from Huntington's model. It's the idea that this is my sphere, it's my military sphere, and so any incursion from civilians into my sphere is a violation. Absolutely, and it's illegitimate. And then you add on another layer to that, which is some of the other survey research that shows that military personnel tend to think that civilians are motivated by parochial domestic political concerns when they get involved in military activity. So now you don't only have it's illegitimate you're interfering in our sphere, but you're doing it for bad reasons. Hmm. You're not doing it for the good of the country. That's insidious to civilian authority. And how are we seeing this paradox of promoting civilian authority but undermining civilian control? How do we see that play out today? Why is it so important now? Yeah, so I think this is actually fascinating on a number of levels. So if you look at recent presidents, what you see from George W. or Barack Obama is um, really a rejection of Huntington and the idea that civilians should stay out of interfering with the military sphere. Um, and, And so... You know, that's sort of the background. They much more embrace sort of Elliot Cohen's model in, in Supreme Command that I mentioned a few minutes ago. But one of the reasons Huntington is concerning today is because right now we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing a real embrace of that model and an idea that um, sort of a, a unleashing of the military from the civilian sphere in a couple of important respects. And I think this is a concerning thing, um, and, and it's, let me just sort of elaborate on that. Right now, you see um, Donald Trump's administration in particular really latching on to the idea that the military should be let alone to sort of run the war itself. And he said things to that effect. Now, I don't know what the reason is. I'm not going to speculate on the reasons why he might have chosen to embrace that model. But the fact is, I think there there is evidence that he has and that he's framing a massive delegation of authority to the military in Huntingtonian terms. And I talk about that in the article. In particular, that's showing up in two ways. One of them is through a massive delegation of control on on the operational and tactical level. Everything from like deciding um, rules of engagement, deciding troop levels, things of that nature in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Yemen, in different places. And so the military is kind of just making these crucial decisions. And that can be a problem because operational sort of level activity can have its own logic and rationale that doesn't always connect with one's strategic and political objectives. And so that can foster a real disconnect there. The second thing, and this is a concern for civilian oversight, um, if we think of civilian oversight as public oversight, 
Um, there's been a real significant decline in transparency about military activity under in, in the current era. You know, things, metrics and things we knew about Afghanistan have now are not published or not being collected. And those and, and so arguments are made, well, those are flawed indicators. Well, yes, OK, maybe so. But it's not like other indicators are being provided to the public. We just don't know a lot about what's going on it, by the military in, in these particular theaters of war and conflict. And that is being rationalized and supported by the idea that the military operates in a separate sphere and should be allowed to run the war by itself. Whereas previous presidents had a lot more interaction with the military, under this administration, the president has been more hands-off and said, let, let the boys do what they're going to do. Yes. And as a result, the military has increasingly made decisions on its own, and it's decreasingly been public and transparent about its actions, making it harder for the public to hold it accountable. Exactly, okay. right. Yep. And so the third piece of your argument against Huntington's theory... Your nuclear, the third leg of your nuclear triangle. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so the paradox number three that you identify, yes. and this is the last one, mm -hmm. um, is that his theory furthers military effectiveness on one hand, but that it also compromises military effectiveness. Um, in, in, in one sense, Huntington's theory has helped the military to be better at its job, and then in some other important ways, it has stopped it or hindered it from being as effective as it could be. Right. So one way to think about this is that Huntington supports um, military effectiveness, understood as sort of this tactical and operational level of war. But it undermines the strategic effectiveness of military activity more broadly understood. And part of this goes back to sort of the way that apolitical is understood and the very broad and amorphous and encompassing understanding of that concept. So it's not just nonpartisan, but it's really an intellectual disengagement by military officers. Now, again, I'm not saying all military leaders do that. Of course they don't. But generally, that's what he's prescribing, is that there is this sort of complete removal from politics. And so how does that translate? That translates, first of all, in the sort of reinforcing this sort of transactional advisory process and that you don't, you get really this abstention from wanting to go there if the conversation veers into political discussion or a danger that that could happen. The second issue is, has to do with accountability. And I think that this is something that isn't always appreciated and understood. Basically, what Huntington suggests is that the civilians are responsible for the outcomes of the wars. Civilians own the wars. Military leaders are the implementers. They just are the technicians. They just do what's put before them. That Huntingtonian mindset does not encourage ultimate accountability and a sense of ownership by the military leadership for the outcomes of those wars. And that is a very dangerous and negative downside to the way that Huntington thinks about civil-military relations. And I'll anticipate what you're going to ask me next is, why does it matter? It matters because here we are at this point of reckoning with the inconclusive outcomes of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that those outcomes are fundamentally shaping attitudes toward war, toward armed conflict, but also toward politics, and are contributing to the sort of disillusionment, I think, that we see towards institutions today. And so we have to understand what and how the weaknesses in civil-military relations in the United States might have contributed to those inconclusive outcomes. We have to understand that some officers, the way they see their roles and responsibilities and strategic assessment and relationships to civilians are, might be contributing to that strategic drift. And do you have any particular officers or case studies from the war that sure. in mind? When you... Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. So in the article, it starts with and then ends with a discussion of the Afghan surge under President Obama in 2009. And um, 
Fortunately or unfortunately for General Stanley McChrystal, he exemplifies some of the dynamics that I was trying to capture in that. Um, in that, it's really interesting as we were talking right before we started the podcast. There's a so you have a great podcast, um, and I recommend that to all of you to listen to it. And um, it's very revealing. So in the beginning of that, when was that? Was that March? 20? It was March of. 2019. 2019. Yeah. Season one. General Stanley McChrystal, thank you so much for joining us on Thank You for Your Service. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. And, um, you know, basically what we talked about is how early in that podcast, he's asked, you ask him about Huntington and in the, in the abstract, he completely rejects it, especially the sort of separation of spheres. And he sort of, you know, acknowledges, you know, military activity has politics all the way down and we have to move beyond Huntington. When Sam Huntington wrote that, I remember he described the military as technicians. You know, that the policymaker would say we want a bicycle and the military would go build the bicycle mm-hmm. and whatnot. But the reality is that's not realistic in what I think, uh, how things need to work. The act of executing military operations changes things on the ground. It affects policy. It's just that way. And similarly, policy affects military operations. It is intertwined the entire time, and it must be. That means that military leaders necessarily have to understand and they need to be adept at dealing to an appropriate level in that policymaking. And then skip forward to where there are questions about the Afghan surge. And he says things like, you know, um, yes, it was very controversial. So when, during this period of time, the 2009 Afghan surge, uh, Obama comes in and he uh, undertakes a review of strategy and he sends McChrystal um, over or he asks McChrystal to undertake an assessment of U.S. strategy in the war. And as part of that assessment, he will recommend 40,000 new troops be sent to Afghanistan. Um, and this, the, a number of things happened to render that um, recommendation and some of the politics and some of the way things are leaked and various things I discussed in the article controversial. And so McChrystal in the podcast is asked to reflect on the controversy about the troop request. And what he says is... If I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, you know, I said, if I'd been politically smarter in the summer of 2009, I would have done the assessment. I would have said the numbers say we need 40,000 more troops and I'm not going to ask for any. And I would tell them that's what the assessment says, but I'm not going to ask for any. We'll try to do it without them. Which is not a good outcome, right? I mean, that's a recipe for strategic ineffectiveness if I've ever heard one. So fortunately, he rejects that. But then he goes on to say, but I kept telling my staff in Afghanistan, we don't own this war. This is not our war. We are technicians. We are going to try to do the Sam Huntington model here. They're telling us what they want done. And we're going to tell them what our calculations say is needed. But you find out even that doesn't work. That, you know, (laughs) he wasn't responsible for the war that he told his staff, this is the civilians war. This is their responsibility. We're just the quote unquote technicians. And so even though in the abstract, he's rejecting Huntington, he's fully embracing it. And I think that mindset, first of all, is very alarming to hear someone say that. And second of all, really reflects the deep blind spots that Huntingtonian thinking can really encourage to the detriment of the country's strategic effectiveness. It showcases how influential Huntington has been, because even with our top commanders, if they wanted to escape the Huntingtonian model, it seems like they really can't. It's really, well, that's an, that's the nature of a norm, right? We don't, we don't reflect upon it. And I think if that's the end of the day, if I can encourage, whether people disagree or agree with anything I've said, if I can encourage through this article and through public engagement about these issues, more reflection on those norms, then, then I've accomplished what I set out. So we've identified all these problems in Huntington's model, that one, it prevents, while enables political activity, Two, it promotes civilian authority but undermines civilian control. And three, it both furthers and compromises military effectiveness. But what's the next step? What needs to be done? What's the solution to remedy these weaknesses? So I'm not going to pretend that I have that all figured out. 
I have some ideas and I'll share those with you. And I have to say there are a lot of people working and thinking about these issues. I'm certainly not the only person who are thinking that there should be some updating to um, some of the normative framework underpinning professionalism today. I guess a couple things I would say is, first of all, I think we need to move beyond this sort of reflexive, apolitical um, concept and understand that and sort of approach it that one needs to parse this sort of unconstructive means of political involvement and political activity that subvert civilian control or that are partisan from the forms that are cons represent constructive engagement with politics, political awareness, understanding in the advisory process how to better interact with civilians and make for a, a process that's going to lend itself to, to creating more strategic, better strategic outcomes. I would also say that, you know, I've been thinking about this. I'll just put this out there, see what anybody else thinks about it, um, that we need a new sort of metric um, for understanding and measuring what political activity is. So I think that in reflecting on this, I think that often what military leaders, and I think you can find examples today of this, think what being apolitical means is it results in or it's equivalent to inaction or passivity. But I don't think that's always right. Doing nothing is not necessarily always the apolitical position. That doesn't mean running amok and sort of saying all sorts of crazy things, but it means that sometimes taking action is the way to to further or limit the military's in political impact on outcomes. And so let me sort of just propose that if we think of being apolitical as minimizing one's impact on domestic debate, so that being apolitical is taking a position that minimizes the military's impact on a domestic partisan or policy debate, sometimes that means set making statements that reiterate the institution's core values, that saying, no, I won't stand behind you when you make a campaign speech, explicitly stating in testimony to Congress during a review of military strategy that you can't yet comment on that because the review is in process. Those are actions. Those are explicit things. But those kinds of actions can help maintain and keep the military out of politics and apolitical. So we need to get rid of this idea that apolitical means always doing nothing. All right. So shifting gears a little bit as we wrap up, we know that civil-military relations is not a topic that features very prominently in high school civics or in most intro to American government classes that undergraduates take. Um, yet here we are at Marquette where you teach civil military relations um, regularly to undergraduate students. Why is it important for these civilian students and not just military academy students, um, but civilian ones to learn about civil military relations, even if um, maybe they might not have careers that directly relate to military policy making. It's a great question. First of all, I would say that I have a lot of ROTC students too, and it's mm -hmm. important for them to be involved in those discussions as well, because they're learning some pretty narrow things, and it's shocking sometimes the things that they aren't exposed to either. And also just they're being educated in a classroom with other civilians, and that's a good, you know, that kind of exposure is really helpful to them. So um, so I would say it goes both ways. What do I think, what are the benefits? Let me just start with, as a teacher, students really love learning about civil military relations. They, when I first say that sometimes, they have no idea what I'm talking about. They just look at me like I'm from another planet. But as soon as we get into some of the debates and issues, it engages them so much. And I think that's because so many political, international, societal, ethical problems are embedded in different ways in aspects of civil military relations. So it's a microcosm for a lot of different things. Um, you can talk about things like ethics and leadership. You can talk about what is patriotism and you know get into philosophical debates about that. You can talk about sociological issues. You know, why do people join the military? 
Um, you can talk about sort of wars and the role of the U.S. military in wars and international problems and things like that. And so I think that intellectually, it is a really useful vehicle for really teaching about a wide range of problems in a way that students are naturally engaged with. But I would say that there's, at the end of the day, there's also a real civics role here. It is remarkable how little students know about the U.S. military. I mean, this isn't the only thing students need to learn, and I'm not suggesting that, but it is it is striking. I had in my American National Security Policy class, I was actually an ROTC student who argued this with me, that the, wasn't the Secretary of Defense always a military leader? And um, if not, well, shouldn't they be? That is phenomenal, right? I mean, a basic understanding of the Constitution or and the National Security Act of 1947, all of these basic things had no concept of. So by teaching this, you're teaching about the structure of the government and about how this really important institution that absorbs by far the vast majority of discretionary spending in the budget, what it's doing, and teaching people to be engaged in these important questions and issues and to pay attention to them for their lifelong, you know, in their lives, no matter what they do and what occupation they pursue. And so what's one thing you want all students, military or civilian, to know about civil-military relations? That's a great question. Um, I would say that the health of those institutions, of the military and the civilian interface, depends on them continuing to understand and pay attention to what the military is doing and the decisions that the civilian leadership is making in war. And that that is the most important reason to care about it, because it's going to affect outcomes that are going to have ramifications for American society and for many of their lives down the road. Well, Dr. Risa Brooks, thank you so much for joining us and for your hospitality, um, having us out to Marquette. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. And stay tuned for an important announcement very soon about the future of the podcast. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Ashwarya Kumar, and our publisher is Yi Ning Wang. Special thanks to Dr. Risa Brooks, as well as her undergraduate international security class at Marquette University. We record here at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Thank you for your service as a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and does not necessarily represent the official positions of the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. I'm Nick Pareso. And I'm Thomas Krasnation. See you next time.